The Start On Demand. On demand. Stepped outside this morning and surprise, it is hot and muggy. We'll get the details from Environment Canada on this unusual mid-September weather. We're also going to hear about how the RCMP are urging you not to chase after thieves because there have been a string of incidents recently where people have chased after thieves and one of those incidents ended in a crash. We'll talk about our infrastructure. Brent Bellamy is a local expert on the subject. He says our city has grown, but the infrastructure hasn't grown with it. And you'll soon have to pay $10 just to get in a taxi. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Tuesday, September 17th podcast for The Start. McGarry and McNabb, indeed 23 degrees. I don't know how it was for you guys, but when I walked out this morning, I was expecting it to be warmer, like I put on shorts, but you, as the second I cracked the door, you could feel mm. the just the mugginess kind of hit me like a tidal wave. The wall of heat. I had a real problem with the, because it was hot, so I wanted the air conditioner on at 3.30 in the car, but then the defrost couldn't figure out you know how to manage the cold in the car and the heat outside it just seemed like everybody was confused like my car was like what do you want me to do with this it's september i'm not ready i had frost building up on the lower part of my windshield and then i had to keep my windshield wipers on because it is so humid and making the windshield cooler i was creating Water. It was absolutely bizarre. And I mentioned to you guys uh, earlier, you know when it rains, you'll have the area of the street where it's not covered by trees is soaking wet. Well, this morning on my bay, the area underneath the trees is wet and the rest of the road is dry. It's almost as though the, the trees are... Are sweating. Yeah, the concrete too. We put a video up uh, on our 680 CJOB Instagram story. Greg and I standing outside here wondering, like, did they clean the concrete outside our building or is it just that moist outside? Mm. Moist. Sorry, Loren. I I couldn't think of another word. Dewey, I suppose. Mm. She's just mad now. No. It's the perfect conveyance of what's happening out there, though. <laughs> <laughs> and it gets her riled up. It's a and it's whammy. moist. <laughs> you get a moist start to your Tuesday morning, everybody. Hey, well, at least you can say it. <laughs> a lot of people can't even. They, nope, don't even say it. Don't. I just, ah. So we're going to talk to Environment Canada coming up in our next segment about this weather to find out how long it's going to last. Also... Uh, we have pictures and video up, and we'll get into this a bit later on, but we have pictures and video up of our misadventures yesterday for the Smile Cookie launch in I'm support so, of the Children's Rehab so Center. Now, you have nothing to be sorry for. So the way it worked is all the radio stations in the city were there, and Greg and I teamed up, Loren McNabb teamed up with Kayla Evans from Global Winnipeg, and... At the last second, they said, oh, and by the way, the person decorating the cookies, the Tim Horton Smile Cookies, is going to be blindfolded. So it was my job to run to the table, grab a cookie, bring it back to Greg, and put it in front of him, and then like basically put his hands on it so he knew where the cookie was. And then he had to squeeze this icing tube and try to draw a smile. And I knew immediately that it wasn't going to work because Greg was just like... <laughs> <laughs> Emptying this tube See, on it. See, I kind of thought that was the way it should go. Like, Kayla was doing such a good job of, she measured out, like, she with her eyes closed, she's got her finger where the first eyeball should go, and then I watched her fingers walk across the cookie. Okay, second eyeball goes here, moves her fingers down, she makes the smile. It was pretty much perfect. And so by the third one, I was like, just go crazy on that <laughs> thing. Like, you got a whole tube of icing. I thought the kid who was uh, going, who was doing the judging would sure. be more impressed by just 
a lot of icing <laughs> than well-placed icing. Yeah. So it, I liked the result. We picked one cookie that was very Picasso-esque mm-hmm. as so. our official submission. But I, I, I was the runner, and I should have been guiding Greg a bit more. But I, I honestly was just curious to see how it was going to play out. And, well, we uh, had it was l- fitting because we said we were going to be bad. We had a little bit of a strategy because we, we said, well, here, we'll make like an Oreo-style cookie, two cookies with mm-hmm. the icing in between. Yeah. Brett could only bring me one cookie at a time. And then you had to return the other one. Which yeah, that's completely right. completely blew our strategy out of the water. So Yeah, and the winner is they 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 had props. They had yeah, see, did you see that? I think they should have been disqualified. They brought clothes for the cookie, a jersey. And that doesn't, you know. It was a Winnipeg nope. Jets jersey. And Stop. Alyssa, the uh, ambassador for the Children's Rehab Center, who made the National Women's Sledge Hockey Team at age 14. Good for her. But uh, she said that it played on her sentimentality. It did. Uh, so I guess kudos to, to them for, for doing well, that. Well, now we know. Yeah. Next time we'll just bring, bring like a box of tricks, you know, that you can pull out. I'll Absolutely. just bring a puppy. I'll puppy. just bring a puppy. Well, yeah. the $5 bill couldn't swear. Yeah, Greg, Greg, so. and Primer. <laughs> <laughs> Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. It is hot. It is humid. It's going to be another muggy day. Brad Vrolick is a meteorologist with Environment Canada. Well, I think most of us can say we're pretty pleased with these temperatures, Brad. But what's really surprising is when you wake up, uh, like we all do, in the middle of the night and you roll out the door and it's really warm and really humid out there. Is that unusual to see those kinds of overnight uh, lows be so high? Oh, definitely. For this time of year, we're uh, right now this morning, we're at 22 degrees right now, and the typical daytime high for this time of year is 18, so we're seeing overnight lows warmer than our normal highs, so yeah, definitely very abnormal. Brad, I was mentioning to Brett earlier this morning, we did a little bit of a video, and it's almost as though the concrete is sweating in places. Is that uh, impossible or something that might be happening? Uh, well, one thing I noticed looking out the window here overnight is even fairly early in, the, early in the night, around midnight, there's already a pretty heavy dew on all the cars out in the parking lot here. So could be just some parts saw some pretty heavy dew or things like that overnight. How long are we expecting this heat wave to last? Uh, well, it's going to be another hot one today, uh, looking at a high near 30 again today with those humid conditions sticking around. Um, tomorrow, we're going to see a low pressure come through, and it's going to bring some cloud and maybe a chance of showers. Um, With the cloud, it'll be cooler um, than today, but it'll still be a bit humid. And then finally, a cold front sweeps through uh, tomorrow night and and flushes that humidity out of the region. So you mentioned that the overnight lows are unusually high. Are we looking at any record-setting temperatures here, or is it going to happen at night if we hit any records? Um, Well, probably not in the Winnipeg area for daytime highs. Um, Our record highs right now are in the low 30s, and we're probably just going to barely get to 30. Um, But we are potentially going to break the record for warmest overnight lows. (laughs) Um, So like I said, it's 22 this morning, so it's quite warm. And if we stay above uh, 17.8 degrees today, um, so by midnight tonight, if we stay above 17.8, we'll set a new record warmest low temperature for today. That is just uh, kind of a bizarre way of going about it, but we, we've got yeah. it clear. We understand exactly what you're saying. Has this mm-hmm. been a southerly flow? Because I've been speaking to my friends out west, and they're, they're not getting temperatures like this at all in Calgary or in British Columbia. Where has all this weather been coming from? Yeah, we have a a really big feature called an upper ridge that's built over the region the past few days. And uh, what it really did is brought a southerly flow starting Saturday uh, all the way today. And we've just seen the heat and moisture come up uh, all the way from like Oklahoma, Nebraska, all the way up to us for this time of year. So, yep. Is there any way we could uh, get that on uh, sort of a permanent basis or <laughs> semi-permanent basis? Oh, well, wouldn't that be nice in December? <laughs> now, is, is this it, Brad? Like, is this our last kick at summer or do we see anything else in the long term that might make us think, okay, well, maybe October might not be so bad either? Well, well you know, Winnipeg, you never know quite what to expect. Um, in, the, in the near term, it looks like mostly a return to seasonal temperatures, Um We might be a little humid again near the end of the week with the next low pressure system forecast to come through, but it doesn't look like we'll get the heat in the same way that we're getting this time. 
Um, so right now, the long-range picture looks like a gradual trend towards more seasonal temperatures over the next 7 to 10 days. Brad Vrolick, Environment Canada meteorologist, joining us live on CJOB to talk about the humidity out there, the sweating streets. It's uh, strange days in September, <laughs> but we'll take it because the normal high, as he said, around this time of year, 17, 18 degrees, we're already crushing that. We want to talk now about, and we'll get into this more after it's 7 o'clock, this warning that's come, Loren, from the RCMP. Well, it stems from the question that I think we've all asked ourselves. If, if you saw someone walk into your yard or your shed or your garage and steal something from it, would you stop them? Would you step outside and yell at them? Or would you even jump in your car and chase them down? That last scenario has RCMP warning Manitobans to stop pursuing thieves. Sergeant Paul Maneg explains why. Owners are at home observing thefts occurring from their property. And like we've mentioned, it's frustrating. People get mad, they get upset. So they kind of think rather quickly, get into a vehicle and they begin to pursue someone that may have stolen a vehicle or an accessory off their property. And their first instincts instincts is obviously they want to catch them. Uh, But that's kind of the concern for us is they're putting themselves in risk. We had a, uh, believe, a truck uh, that entered a property, I believe may have stolen a trailer, hooked it up, took off. The owner witnessed this, went in pursuit after them. We're assuming some high-risk speeds are, were involved, and this vehicle ended up you know, hitting the ditch. Uh, luckily, he wasn't injured, but imagine if his speeds had been too high and uh, he hurts himself or at worst, dies in this collision. It's regarding property that can be replaced. And I get that. I get that the message is your safety is more important, but I think it's pretty hard to tamp down those instincts in that moment to say, like, I can get this guy. It's happening right in front of me. And so after seven, we're going to talk to a criminal defense lawyer about what your rights are and and what could get you in trouble beyond just the idea of being hurt by someone. If someone is on your property, what what should you be doing or what can you legally do? Well, it's infuriating when your privacy, when your property has been violated. Uh, it's, it's difficult to suppress those feelings. We had a text message right off the bat when we first discussed this earlier this morning. Share part of it with you right now. Good morning, all. Uh, I rented a house in the Maples during the height of the car theft era. Do you remember that in Winnipeg? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and, of course, MPI had to implement the whole immobilizer program, etc. Well, when the city was beginning to make all those anti-theft FOB things mandatory in all vehicles, I was very aware that my truck was a target. Whenever I would get home, I would crank the music all the way up turn off my truck, and put the club on the wheel. One morning at around 1 a.m., I woke up to loud music and my headlights flooding the room because, well, I had forgotten to put the club on that evening. My husband realized what was going on and ran outside to catch the would-be thieves while I called the police and ran after, uh, they ran after, uh, he ran after them on his phone, uh, While I was on my phone, sorry, there's some voice-to-text stuff here going on. As my husband chased these people down the lane in bare feet in minus 40 weather, the woman on the phone with me kept telling me there were no cars around she could just send. I yelled something in the phone about uh, donut shop close by. She felt bad for years about it. But you can see the the frustration that people have. Well, they're right there. In that instinct, right they got out of the vehicle, so the car wasn't truck wasn't stolen, but the people are right there. So I can appreciate in that time frame, you're thinking, I can get you and I will stop you. And that's hard to control, that instinct. Yeah, when even in a road rage situation, I know that I have been caught or a couple of times where somebody cut me off or what have you, and I would end up following this person or playing chicken with them. Because you're mad, and you're like, I need to say something to you. You can't do that. Yeah, there was a situation where a guy cut me off on Osborne. I was heading southbound, like right after you go under the, uh, just past Confusion Corner, he cuts me off by the McDonald's, I think it was. And my turn, like I had to go all the way up through Dunkirk and then turn off on Dakota. I kept going because we were playing, we were just playing like, He'd cut me off, I'd cut him off, we'd cut me off, and then I finally got to the intersection, St. Mary's and Bishop Grandin, lights uh, red, 
And he, I see in the rearview mirror, he's getting out of his truck. Mm-hmm. So I had to get out of my car and puff my chest out as big as I could. Thankfully, I was taller than him, and he backed off. Uh, it doesn't mean anything, not the fact that I'm taller than him. I just appearances can be deceiving because I'm a teddy bear. But I had to let him know that I was, I meant business, and and I shouldn't have shouldn't right. have ever gotten into that situation. Right. You so. know, dangerous, right? You know, you shouldn't have done it. But again. Our next conversation that we're going to have with you guys is prompted by a tweet sent by RCMP. It reads, Lately, RCMP Manitoba have responded to multiple incidents where property owners are actively pursuing suspects in an attempt to get their property back. In one instant, the tweet reads, A collision occurred. Chasing vehicles is very dangerous and should be avoided. Instead, call police immediately. And as we were discussing in the last half hour, that warning, of course, makes sense. We get why police would be saying that and not just for safety reasons, but the rational part of your brain doesn't always work that way. Winnipeg lawyer Robert Tapper joins us now to discuss. Good morning, Robert. Good morning. How are you? We're well. We can appreciate these safety concerns. But in that moment, we know a lot of people might just follow their instincts and chase after that person. Where does that stand in a legal standpoint? If I'm doing it on my property, is there any issues about trying to to nab somebody in the moment? Well, you know, to misquote an old uh, song or poem, uh, how can this hurt you? Let me count the ways. Um, There's any number of ways you're going to get in trouble and very few where you won't. So let's start with them, day or night. If it's at night and you're chasing somebody, you've got to be certain that you've got the right person because somebody might have been out for a jog. But let's say you do catch them and you tackle them and they go to the ground and they hit their head and they've got a spinal cord injury or a brain injury, you've got a lawsuit. The person has no option but to sue. And then you hope your house insurer is going to cover you for that lawsuit and indemnify you, and they tell you, no, we're not going to do that because you committed a criminal offense yourself, so you're SOL. Uh, I mean, it's a really, really, really bad idea. When I was listening to the introduction to the show, uh, there was something about following somebody in a car. Well, MPI will tell you, no, you do that. You're chasing, you're speeding, you're on your own um, when you have a collision. There's just no way in the world that a citizen should attempt this. And taking into account that the person who's committing this theft is more likely than not a meth-fueled Yahoo and uh, will likely be carrying a knife or worse, a gun. And uh, your best intentions go right into the garbage can at that point. Uh, So, you know, the police are under rigorous training for proportionality in an arrest. And if you're attempting a citizen's arrest, there's just so many complications. And very, very rare, probably one in 10,000 cases that's going to work out to the benefit of the person doing the chase. We hear You're it going often. to get sued. You're just going to get sued, whether it's for false arrest or excessive force or worse, a major injury. Uh, and the person who sues you will win. That's the, the ugly part of it. Robert Tapper, lawyer, joining us this morning. And uh, Robert, we, we hear in the United States, uh, people who are concerned about gun violence and the safety of having a gun in your home will tell you that you're more likely to be harmed by a gun that you own uh, as opposed to it saving you. So it, it sounds as though the, the likelihood of uh, a good result in the scenario that you laid out is about as equal as the gun scenario, but you can understand where where people are frustrated. Sure, but, you know, that's a great issue, and and thanks for raising that, because it opens up a whole new kettle of fish, and that's this. Uh, You you know, you hear a noise in the middle of the night, you come out, there's a burglar in your house, you take out your trusty Smith & Wesson and threaten him or worse, shoot, and then the police arrest you for not storing the gun in a way with a trigger lock and a safe and separated from ammunition because that's the criminal code. Uh, and they're saying, why did you have ready access to your gun? They won't ask you first, you know, why did you shoot him? They'll, they'll know why you shot him, but this isn't Texas. I mean, that's the difference between us as Canadians and, and them there down south in Texas where it's open carry and, and shoot, don't ask questions, just shoot. Uh, they live in a different world, which I have to tell you, I'm quite happy not to be living in. I'm okay to be in a different world in that respect, but I think at the end of the day, there's still going to be people saying, well, hang on, can't I do something? 
Well, there, there is some things you can do and reactions in the heat of the moment. I mean, my wife would say if I saw somebody harming the dog, never mind me, I wouldn't count. But uh, <laughs> if I saw somebody harming, harming the dog, I'd be grabbing some kind of weapon. But the guns, for example, are off the table because they're locked up. That's the law in Canada. They're locked up. Ammunition is separated. There's a trigger lock on the trigger and the gun's in a safe. So you're not going to get access to that gun. Uh, if you're sleeping with it under the pillow, you've committed a criminal offense. But I mean, if you happen to have a handy sword in the in the, in the house, I can go for it. But <laughs> what what if you know the thief is sword trained? You know, it, it just makes very little sense as opposed to locking yourself in the bedroom and getting on the phone and phoning nine one one. People are so frustrated right now, and, and I get what you're trying to convey here, Robert. And and I agree with you for the for the most part. I just think we're at a tipping point here, where people are seeing more and more criminal activity. I real I found out yesterday that I was a victim uh, of a crime. Uh, one of my uh, vehicles was broken into, even though it's locked in a compound uh, consistently and security monitored, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and it's going to cause me all sorts of grief if I. Yeah. These guys doing this uh, firsthand. Oh, yeah. I, who knows what I I, I would have I contemplated I've had doing? A in, you know myself, but I, I had a, a couple years ago. I had an attempted break in while I was home, and I managed to deal with the young fellow um, by uh, showing him the knuckles of my right hand. And one of my <laughs> friends said, "Have you have you looked at your birth certificate recently? You know uh, what are you doing? What are you thinking?" Yeah. So yeah, you react in the heat of the moment, but you have to look back in the mirror and say that was dumb. Robert Tapper, we love talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us today to, to fill us in on this. The, the bottom line is it's a bad idea. Don't do anything stupid. Exactly. All Have right. a good day. Time now for Breakfast with the Bombers. It's brought to you by the Cooperators. Find an advisor at cooperators.ca, a better place for you. Our guest today was the number one top performer presented by Shaw in the CFL. During the Banjo Bowl, right we on. have a hint for you here. He's doing it with his arms, well, his right arm, and his feet. What Am I supposed to play a clip? Oh, there it is. There Second it is. and two at the rider, just inside the rider five. What do they come up with here? Streveler back to pass, and he throws deep in the end zone. Peterman, touchdown! Daniel Peterman deep in the end zone on the pass from Chris Streveler. Second and 10, Ryder 33, Streveler again back to pass. And now he's going to take off and run. He's to the 30, breaks a tackle to the 25, the 20. He's still going to the 15. He's down to the 11-yard line, and you won't see a run like that by a quarterback very often. I would not be the Shaw top performer of the week based on the way I just dropped the ball there, Greg. Sorry about that. <laughs> all good. Chris Trevler making up for all sorts of absences on the field. A couple of weeks ago here in Winnipeg, and he joins us now. Good morning, Chris. Hey, how's it going? Thanks it, for having me on. It's always great to have you on, and uh, uh, it's been uh, a week off. What'd you do with the uh, with the time away from the field? Oh, I had a had a good little bye week. I uh, spent a little time down in Nashville with uh, my dad and some other family members and friends, and then went out to uh, Arizona, visited my mom. She just moved out there, and then got back to Winnipeg on Thursday. So uh, it was a really nice week. My all important question then: Does this mean you're a country music fan? Uh, yeah, I'm just kind of a music fan in general, so I kind of get down with whatever music, and I'm telling you, Nashville is awesome, like, there's so much live music, and obviously country music everywhere, but, um, it was a blast, yeah, I loved it there, that was my first time, so, definitely would love to be back, for sure. What, what brought you down to Nashville, like, how did you guys decide, hey, let's go to Nashville? Yeah, so my dad just recently turned 50 during the season, so we had kind of been planning a trip (laughs) during the bye week to go celebrate and do something, so, um, we kind of have a group that, uh, goes on vacations together it's uh just some family members some friends and stuff and it's a really fun group so we ended up deciding on nashville and we were all able to meet up down there and worked out really well it was super fun i think greg just had a moment where he realized something here chris if you heard us uh a bit of a giggle there about age am i wrong no you're not wrong chris i've seen your dad at the games a couple times and i just turned 50 myself so (laughs) 
just realized I'm old enough to be your dad. And uh, so that uh, hit me a a little hard there. So I apologize for the uh, cringeworthy noise effect in the background. I giggles when I tell people that. I get it. <laughs> it's fantastic. And it's great to see how often your dad does come up for the games. He's become a real student of the game. And I know he sat uh, next to uh, uh, one of my buddies a couple of different times. He's he's learning the game quite quickly for, by all accounts. Yeah. I mean, he comes up to a lot of games. And, you know, he doesn't really try to coach me up or anything like that anymore. You know, he's just there to support me and support the team. And, um, you know, I'm super thankful he's able to make it up to a lot of games. So, you know, I don't know how much he actually knows about, you know, the X's and O's of football, but, you know, he's a he's a great uh, support for me and, and the Bombers as a whole. Well, like I'm saying, I've got some inside intel that says he's uh, learning the nuances of the Canadian game as well. So uh, you're uh, really, uh, this was a little bit of a coming out party for you, I think, in the Banjo Bowl. Uh, some very uh, definite defining plays in terms of what you were able to to do, including that opening drive where, unfortunately, it dropped back to pass on the opening uh, offensive play of the game. You got sacked and then uh, took off with the ball on your own. And then that, that play in the second quarter that we played for folks uh, before we brought you on uh, there, there's a real determination when you take off with the football uh, it, it's almost as though you're looking around and you're saying hey guys uh, I got this just get on my back and and let's get going here <laughs> you know I mean I don't know if I ever think about it that way it's just trying to move the ball offensively and get yards and you know however however we need to do that you know I think we, everyone's more than willing to do whatever it takes so you know if it's you know, for passing, we got to, you know, however we got to do it. If I got to run the ball a little bit, we can, we can definitely do that. So I never feel like I have to, you know, put anyone on my back or anything like that. It's just everyone doing their jobs and, and playing hard for each other and trying to honor their teammates and, and make the team better. Were you surprised at all at how easily you dispatched of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders in the Banjo Bowl? <sighs> no, I mean, they're a great team and, and they play extremely hard. I mean, they've got a great defense and we just executed extremely well and, and, you know, it was kind of talked about after the game, all three phases, you know, came to play and big special teams play defense, getting takeaways and offensively, we were able to finish a lot of drives with points and not turn the ball over. So, you know, we felt really good with that performance all together. And, you know, it, there's no doubt about how good of a team they are. Obviously it was, it was a, it was a tough test and um, they're a really good team. We'll see them again this year. Well, let's talk about how good you think your team will be. The Bombers will be with Andrew Harris back in the lineup this week. Does that change the way you do anything, or is he just fitting back into the mold as usual? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really change the way we do things, you know. Um, obviously, Andrew's a great player, future Hall of Famer, one of, the, one of the best to do it, and it's always great to have him back. You know, Johnny did a great job these past couple of weeks stepping in and being ready to go and making the most of his opportunities. So couldn't be happier for Johnny, but extremely excited to get Andrew back and, you know, kind of get uh, his role in the offense rolling again. So things don't really change. And, you know, that's kind of how we build the offense is just being able to step up into next man up mentality. We've said it a million times and, and that's how we were able to do it. So definitely excited to have him back. Okay. Now, uh, none of us have been in the film room this week. It doesn't really matter. You guys will, you guys know how well Montreal has been playing. Kahari Jones, the former blue bomber quarterback, has the Alouettes playing some, some very good football right now, but I need to know, uh, do you know the perils of, of life in Montreal on a road trip to Montreal, Chris, have you been, have you been told to, you know, just, be conscientious of what can grab you and, and take hold of you in Montreal on a Friday night. Uh, ha- have you guys got a curfew in place? What's the plan to combat uh, life in La Belle Provence? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I was there on the trip last year. And, you know, obviously when you go on a road trip, no matter where you're going, your job is to be a professional. You're there to play a football game. So, you know, I think uh, we got a, we got a really good locker room, a lot of good professionals who, you know, know how to handle their business when it comes to being prepared to play a football game. So I don't think that's something that we're too worried about as any distractions uh, going to Montreal. Obviously, we know there are a lot of distractions, but um, like I said, we're professionals and we're there to play a football game. And I think uh, everyone in the locker room knows it and knows how tough the test it's going to be. Well, Chris, we got a text message here at 204-780-6868 from one of our listeners who says, we don't have a backup quarterback. We got two number ones. So please tell them that for me. Uh, so we're delivering that message to you. Uh, I mean, the community really has embraced you, uh, and you you just you 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 stay you've stayed modest throughout. Uh, so we appreciate your candor and uh, everything you're doing for the football club. Well, I, I appreciate you guys too, and and all the fans. I mean, the support 
you know, not only these past couple weeks, but throughout the entire season, just of our team has been amazing. And, you know, they show out to games and, and they're loud and they create a great home field advantage for us. And I mean, it's every time I go out to the grocery store or whatever, there's people stopping me just saying how happy they are about the Bombers playing well and things like that. So, you know, the fan support is something that we definitely, definitely appreciate from the locker room and um, something we don't take for granted and definitely helps us, especially when we're playing at home. That's life as a Winnipeg Blue Bomber, Chris. We appreciate it. We appreciate you, and we look forward to uh, Saturday's game against uh, Montreal and then a, a big ba- game uh, coming up uh, a week this Friday against Hamilton. I know you guys don't look ahead. We just have to plant the seed for the <laughs> listeners and the fans there. Good luck, on, uh, good luck yeah. on Saturday afternoon in Montreal, Chris. All right. Thank you so much. Appreciate having me on. Chris Strebler, the mighty Thor, joining us live on 680 CJOB. We start this hour by saying to you, if you're planning to take a cab after September 30th, be prepared to hand over $10 before the meter starts. It's all part of a pilot project implemented by the city. Matt Allard is the chair of the Standing Policy Committee on Infrastructure Renewal and joins us now to explain. What was the impetus for this decision to have this prepayment scheme? Uh, Well, this has been identified as uh, one of the probably the the biggest source of conflict between passengers and drivers. And so this has been identified as uh, probably, I mean, call it maybe low-hanging fruit in terms of uh, ways that we can better the um, uh, the rider experience. And uh, this is a pilot, so we're we're going to try it out, see how it goes. And if, uh, you know, if the feedback um, you know, goes one way or the other, we'll be able to reconsider to see if wh- whether or not we want to make this permanent. So when you say pilot, is it being tested just amongst a certain number of cab drivers or is it citywide? There's no specific jurisdiction. Yeah, it's so citywide. Um, it will apply to everyone during the hours of 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. seven days a week. So there'll be a mandatory prepayment of $10. And that has certain exceptions. But uh, generally for, for people in Winnipeg um, who are looking to get around the city, that's going to be uh, the situation. So, Councilor Lord, I cannot help but wonder what this is going to do to the perception of the city from people getting off a plane from elsewhere. They get into a cab at 9 p.m. and then they, then they encounter something they've never encountered anywhere else, this idea of prepaying for a cab. Now, understand we've been prepaying for gas in certain jurisdictions for an awfully long time. In fact, that's more often the rule than than not after dark and, and 24 hours a day in a lot of places that, that I visited. So I get that this isn't unprecedented uh, necessarily, but it is going to be with regards to a taxi cab. And so if I'm coming in from Toronto and I say, why do I need to prepay? I know what the story I'm going to get from that taxi driver is going to be about how bad the crime is in Winnipeg. That's going to be the story. Yeah. Well, I mean, so if you are coming from Toronto, the first thing that's going to happen is you're, um, you're going to hit one of those exceptions. So uh, passengers uh, at the airport uh, are excluded. And uh, I guess if you're if you are coming from Toronto, probably the first thing you're going to do is check Uber to see uh, to see what your Uber service is like, and then uh, and then probably through some inquiries you'll find out about Tapcar and uh, and and our taxi services. But you know, like this is a this is a pilot. Uh, we're going to try it out, and uh, this has been identified as a major source of conflict uh, for for customers and for drivers. And so, uh, you know, it's. Uh, uh, public policy, you have to consider what, uh, you know, do the benefits outweigh uh, the negatives. And I think in this case, um, you know, the public service is confident this is, this is a good direction, at least to try. And so we're going to do that. And if it turns out that, uh, you know, that conflicts uh, are reduced for, for passengers and drivers, then it could be a really good story. Is there any concern in this initiative that people are going to get in the cab and if it's only a 10 or 11 dollar cab ride to begin with which is the case for many people maybe going to and from a bar or from the downtown that they just might choose to not take the taxi or say i don't want to prepay you something to wait to get that money back and then it might hurt the taxi industry which has proclaimed that it's struggling due to the emergence of the you know ride sharing services yeah, well, I mean, that's uh, there's going to be opinions on both sides, but uh, we did do uh, a survey, stakeholder survey, with over the over 900 responses, and a uh, majority of those people were looking for this uh, for this approach. So, in terms of the taxi industry, I think we do have uh, strong uh, strong opinions in favor of this program. And uh, I mean, in terms of people making different choices, uh, that's that's something that's happened since um, 
the devolution of, of cabs to the city of Winnipeg, um, you know, things have changed and we have, um, we have a model that's uh, revenue neutral. Uh, we are saving taxpayers dollars and I think we're seeing a higher level of service as well since, uh, since Winnipeg is now administering uh, ride, uh, ride hailing, ride sharing and, uh, and cabs. So, you know, I think, um, you know, I think there's pros and cons, but uh, I think it's worth uh, giving it a shot. But is this being done anywhere else? Did we take this out of a page of another city's book and, and are learning from that? Do we know if this <clears throat> has been practiced elsewhere? You know, I, uh, I'd have to double check to see uh, the cross-jurisdictional um, comparisons, but I do know that this has been, this is coming forward to address uh, a specific situation in Winnipeg and, uh, and I think uh, I think it could be a, it could be a positive, but we're not going to know until it's uh, it's in the field for a little while. And uh, and we do know that uh, a majority of of those surveyed were were in favor in the stakeholder community. So this, for a lot of people, just heightens their opinion that there needs to be more of a, a of a concerted effort to bring Uber and Lyft to Winnipeg and other larger. Uh, higher capacity providers of, of ride-sharing services because there is no money involved in ride-sharing services. It's all done online. There's no exchange of funds. It's all done quite uh, neatly and tidily. There's no interaction on that front. The The fare is decided basically by the algorithm and there's no, there's no interaction on that front. And has the taxi cab industry addressed the idea and i don't know how often you take a cab matt but i do from time to time and there is a genuine disdain on the part of the drivers for anybody who's paying with a credit card in the first place has that been addressed with the industry overall well i mean i think that's i mean i take i take a cab from time to time as well and uh you know i do i do First thing I do because I've had similar experiences in the past is I, you know, I ask about payment method, and uh, I've never had a problem in terms of paying with, with credit. Uh, and just going to unpack a few things you said on uh, on Uber and Lyft. Uh, you know, city, um, the city, uh, as you recall, uh, we we passed a bylaw. I think it's a couple of years ago now, and um, we did that in consultation with Lyft and Uber, and they uh, their feedback was positive in terms of our bylaw. So I think the city's done our part in terms of attracting. Uh, uh, you know, companies like Uber and Lyft. My understanding is that they have some issues with uh, the way our insurance is structured um, at uh, at MPI. So, uh, so, I mean, I think that's probably where the issue lies in terms of why we don't have Uber and Lyft uh, today in Winnipeg. I think Winnipeg's done their part. That's fair. That has been the outline issue for them, and they have spoken about it to MPI. And so we'll wait and see if those things change. For now, we'll have to leave it here. Thanks, Matt. For sure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, we're talking taxis because the city is launching this pilot project at the end of the month where you'll have to pay a $10 deposit just to get into the cab. So at the end of the ride, if your fare is under 10 bucks, you'll be refunded the difference. And if it's more, then you'll just square up at the end of the ride. It's all designed to prevent fare disputes. But we were talking about the notion of using your credit card, like let's say you get in a cab. You don't have any cash. If you've ever gotten into a cab and they say, how are you going to pay? And then you say credit card. I don't know how it's been for you, but for me, sometimes they make, they put on a big show. Okay, uh, hang on. I just, I got to, they, they make it like it's the end of the world. Not all. I don't want to paint all cab drivers with the same brush, but some of them make a very big deal out of having to use plastic. No question about it. I've been there. I've been down that road. And that's why I asked the question, because I felt uncomfortable in the past, and maybe it's based on one experience or two experiences that I had once upon a time, so now I'm hesitant to use the credit card at the end of the trip in fear of getting the whole rigmarole, and so it makes the trip somewhat stressful to begin with, and we're getting lots of feedback from our listeners, as I was anticipating, seven eight zero sixty eight sixty eight, just this whole idea of, idea of, can we not just for as often as we can take payment out of the equation? Why aren't the taxi cabs setting up a situation where you can pay like you can pay on Uber? Uh, there's got to be some other ways to get around this situation. And one of our listeners also asking, how many inc- instances are we talking about of? 
confrontations and fair non-payment. How prevalent is this? So we are endeavoring uh, to get to, to the bottom of that and get the answers to that question. I wish I would have thought of that while we had um, Councillor Allard on the air, Loren. Well, that, that's a good question in terms of what's the hard data behind it. And then the other one, too, I'm kind of just going through what different cities have proposed over the years. A prepayment scheme was proposed in Toronto at one point. I'm trying to figure out if that ever went through. I don't think so, having lived there, but it's been a while. And and you're right, there are apps out there for all the different services, no matter what you do, that involve you just entering your credit card. So that if it's as simple of taking care of it that way. My thing would be more about just also the time consumption aspect to get in, you have to hand over your credit card, prepay, sit there, get to the end, realize you need to pay more or get some money back. And I, I never quite frankly trust it ever when I get a refund on my credit card. Aren't you ever just at the store being like, so money's just magically going back on? I know you have no problem taking it off, sure, but I never trust that either. So I feel like you, you're adding time to the equation as well. And yeah, it might only be a matter of minutes, but that sometimes matters depending on what you're rushing to or from. And uh, and then just the technology aspect. I mean, what we don't have something better that we can do that would make this easier for everyone. Well, yeah. and I kind of wonder if the cabs are going to Napster themselves out of relevance because you've got these ride-sharing apps where you... Just download it on your phone and you order it and it's paid for and there's no transaction that happens in the car. And they, they're very specific on the apps. They'll tell you what kind of car you're looking for so you don't know. Because sometimes you order a cab and you wonder, is that mine? Uh, okay, well, I, I see it's the company I called, but is it, it could be for somebody else. Uh, but that happened in the music industry. They didn't embrace the new technology and they screwed themselves. And now... Cabs are making it even more difficult, or the, the, it's going to be more difficult, or more. They're going. This is going to discourage some people, I think. Uh, although we got a text here, uh, hey guys, I traveled all over Canada, the U.S. and Mexico for work. Used an Amex card almost exclusively and never had an issue. So what's the problem? Well, if you had good experiences, great. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, that's been my experiences in other places as well. And I in hear New it. York, they have the yes. machine right in the back seat for you. You just swipe or so tap you, or whatever. So you tap yep. or swipe, right? You don't hand the card. Uh, in Winnipeg, at least it's been my experience. Um, and in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, we took a cab home from the airport after our vacation. And they've got the handheld like they have for the pizza driver or, or for uh, skip the dishes or what have you. There's no mounted machine and so immediately when you're in New York as an example when you get in the back of that cab the stress of that interaction about form of payment is eliminated because it's actually right there and it's part of the rules as well you know the driver cannot give you a hard time about where you want to go because it's a too short of a trip. I've had that conversation as well. The whole idea about how you're going to pay, there's to be no argument about form of payment. There's a reason that's a rule in New York City because in the past and over time, they have had these issues between drivers and passengers. And I want to say, I do appreciate where our taxi driver is coming from. You worked really hard throughout the night. You get to three in the morning. You have, say, a $45 cab ride that you get stiffed on. Someone runs off and doesn't pay it for you. might take you three or four more hours to get that I money get back. That. So I, I can... was in an industry where I got, I had the same, where you had people running out on your bill. We had a fund for, for sure. that. And I and I understand that. This is, this is going to be interesting. I just did this. As we speak, got a note from Matt Allard's office from his uh, one of the people that work for him saying they're still looking into the numbers in terms of the hard data behind how often this happens. But there are a few places in Australia, Australia that have prepayment in various forms. Winnipeg will be the first municipality in Canada, and they believe North America to try this prepayment. We're plan. first. We're first. Well, if it helps to reduce fares, that's great. People are going to use cabs. I think we'll still pay the money, but I'm sure it's going to raise some eyebrows in no doubt. We want to continue the conversation right now on infill housing infrastructure and so on. Yeah, our, our city has grown over the last several decades and, and maybe never faster uh, with the exception of the of the 19, uh, early 1900s as it is right now. And 
infrastructure hasn't kept up with growth, with uh, all too few notable exceptions. We've been talking about densification, infill housing, and the services which are being affected. Brent Bellamy is creative director and architect, number 10 architectural group. He's also chair at Centre Venture. He joins us now. And Brent, last night you put out on Twitter a couple of maps I found very interesting. Would you do me the honour of describing what those maps represented? Yeah, um, it was a fascinating thing that I came across yesterday. The city is, as you know, doing their uh, infill strategy right now, and next week they're doing um, public consultation. So across the city, I think every single day next week in a different neighborhood, they're going out and reaching out to the to the residents and they to talk about what infill development means. And they put out their boards, their de- their display boards, and there's a really great graphic that explains exactly what the issues are with infill. It shows that in 1971, the population of Winnipeg was about a half a million. And today, the population is about 700,000. So it's grown by about a third, about 37%. So we all know the city is less dense than it used to be. So how big do you think, how much more land area do you think the city is taking with the population growth of a third? You know, you'd guess maybe half. The reality is the city today is twice as large as it was in 1971 in area, but in population only about a third larger. Well, this so speaks- that's re- it, it's really a staggering graphic when you see it sort of outlined in, in bright red. Well, it speaks to the overall issue that we keep coming back to is about urban sprawl and what we're going to do about it, which is then why you have the argument for the infill housing, because it keeps the homes and the people in the centre of the city without the need to add bus routes or roads or garbage routes, etc., that's right. If you think of the repercussions of a city that's twice as large as it was 40 years ago and only grown by a third, um, every single homeowner, every single person that pays property taxes is today paying to support 50% more infrastructure than they were in the 70s. So if you think about, think about that in, in practical terms, when they're clearing snow in the winter, they're today clearing twice as much snow as they were in the 70s, but only a third more people are there to pay for it. Or if your property taxes were paying to support one kilometer of road to maintain one kilometer of road in the 70s, today your property taxes are paying to support one and a half kilometers of road. And so we know what the effect of that is. Either you raise taxes or you don't maintain the road as much. And it, you know, it almost seems like we have both. So it's very clear when you see it graphically. It's not, it's not trying to make people live in ice cube trays downtown. It's, there's a real economic reason and a mathematical reason why infill development is is good and should be supported. So Brent, this is uh, some of the information I think. Uh, I'm not inside the head of the mayor or the legal counsel at the city of Winnipeg, but when they go to court with the the home builders and this idea of growth fees being, uh, you know, something that, that should be done away with, the city would use this graphic and say, this is exactly why we need to do this. But on the flip side, I would say, how do you implement something like growth, growth fees and not have a detailed infill policy strategy in place in lockstep with implementing those fees? 100%. They need to be the same policy, to be honest. And we, I've always been an advocate for taking the growth fees and, and making them, using part of those as incentives to, to allow developers to, to develop more infill development because it is, there is, it's much more expensive to develop an existing, a redevelop an existing home than it is in a greenfield site on the perimeter. Um, there's all kinds of opposition, which you know it's, it's very difficult for a developer to develop inside a mature neighborhood. So those policies really need to work together to make sure that we're building a city for the future that is sustainable. Because if we maintain the, the current pace with the doubling every 50 years, with the population only growing by a third, I mean, we're going to be in real problems for the next generation. It's easy to sometimes sit here and say, how come we didn't do it this way? Why don't we have those policies in place already? Why is it taking so long? But this has been a problem in many cities. I can look to Edmonton. They are having a conversation about infill housing right now. So are councillors in Calgary. It seems to be something that cities across this country have suddenly gone, "Uh uh-oh, look where we are. We need to get more housing built back into the centre of our cities, but we don't have plans in place. 
Yeah, it, I mean, it's something, it's because we've all hit a tipping point, and you can see every single year the city's budgets are, are stretched, uh, services are declining, the roads are crumbling, and this is the exact reason why. And so we've finally reached that point where we know we need to do something about it. And, you know, there are a lot of guidelines that are in place. There's a lot of zoning rules, but to have them sort of coalesced in one single um, document that developers can look to and, and homeowners can understand, I think that will help sort of grease the wheel for better development. And, and so there's less opposition as we move forward. We've heard the terminology about lot splitting uh, come up quite a bit in the stories that Richard Kluchet filed for us and discussed with us over the last couple of days, Brent. But uh, can you help us understand this? Because I think it's been my interpretation and impression that in St. Vitale and uh, St. James and some of these other communities uh, where people are quote unquote lot splitting, what they're actually doing Doing is is doing what was originally done, and in a lot of cases, people in, in the 40s or 50s would buy two lots, build a home on it, and uh, now what's being done is, is those those two lots or one that one lot, pardon me, is be, becoming two once again. Is is that what's happening, or is it genuine lot splitting of a 50 foot lot? You know, there's not a lot of 50 foot lot lot splitting in Winnipeg. It is mostly on wider wider. Um, pieces of property or what happens is a a developer will buy two and split it into um, one larger development as opposed to like two smaller houses. Um, There are restrictions on how narrow you can go. 25 is sort of the minimum, but there are also other caveats like it has to be the, it can't be smaller than the next smallest um, lot on the street. And there are other things. And that's what I hope the the infill development guidelines will really set in place in stone. So we, we know exactly when a developer goes to buy a piece of property, he knows exactly what will get passed through um, planning and council. And so we won't be fighting every single time and residents will be able to look at it and say, look, these were the rules that were set in place and we, we can't fight them every time. What about form and fit? That's a big part of the discussion as well. How yeah. tall, how long, how narrow, uh, building materials, all, all those conversations. Do people that, that have their noses up and don't like what's going on in some neighborhoods have a beef in terms of the design of these infill homes, Brent? That's a much more difficult one for me. I, you can't really legislate taste. You know, I I look at some of those new houses and think, wow, they're much more beautiful than the old little 700-square-foot bungalow beside it. But other people feel completely differently. So it's it, there are, I think we can regulate the form, like this, the shape and the size. And there are rules about setbacks. And you can't build a house in most neighborhoods taller than 30 feet and some neighborhoods 35. Um, and there are setback rules on the side yards and the rear yards and the front yards. So we do have those rules in place. I think it's it's a pretty slippery slope to begin to regulate the aesthetic of a house. So I think that's where people sort of need to under, need to maybe work on accepting change a little bit more. I know that's a difficult thing, but we can't be reg, um, regulating aesthetic taste. So it's, we, if we talk about how shadows and setbacks and those things, I think we can set those guidelines, but, but materials and aesthetics I think is a, is a much more difficult thing. Brent, is there such thing, or could there be such a thing as too much infill housing? I recently moved back to Osborne Village, and I can look from my balcony down to Roslyn, where two houses once stood, and now there's a seven-story, either apartment or condo block. Down the street at Nassau and River, they tore down a house, and now they're building a multi-unit, four- or five-floor building. At Stradbrook and Nassau, same thing. They tore down two houses, and now there's a huge apartment building there. Uh, But Osborne Village is already jam-packed. It's already tough to find parking. Is there such thing as too much infill? You know, this is what I also hope is comes out of the, the guidelines, is that we do really target where infill is most appropriate. You know, on a mid-block in um, River Heights, as an example, is less um, inviting for, for infill, I would say, to, to the residents around it than, say, on Academy Road or Sherbrooke. And so if we, I would love to see incentives to develop the major routes in the city. Like instead of developing in Glenwood, maybe we provide incentives to develop on St. Mary's Road. You know, so the higher density is to the, to, to the larger streets. And then, and then as we move into the neighborhood, it's sort of lower density. So I, I think that's sort of, if we target where the most appropriate development can happen, I think we will um, sort of move away from some of the opposition that's happening. 
Yeah, I think in the Osborne Village in particular, and I'm I'm guilty. I have a, a condo in Osborne Village, and I think it's been almost too successful there because. Yeah. Traditionally, you have uh, people now that uh, have gone from like a single family home and you've put in 10 condos and you, you've got 20 adults living in, in those 10 condos. And in a lot of cases, both of them have cars and there's only parking for one car per unit. And, and I think it's, it's restricting the amount of uh, on street parking that's available, Brent. Yep. And that's why I fully believe that we need a strategy that's not just talking about what shape the house that goes beside me should be. If it's two stories and I hate two stories, it should be legislated out. I think we need an infill guideline, infill policy that really strategizes where the most appropriate infill can happen. And there are great places for that in the city, but it's not really identified. It's not incentivized. It's not pushed. So that's that's a, a really big piece of what the infill goals should be. Brent Bellamy, Creative Director and Architect at Number 10 Architectural Group, Chair of Center Venture, joining us live on 680CJOB. Follow him on Twitter at Brent Bellamy to see the graphics he was talking about. Brent underscore Bellamy. Brent, thank you very much for this. Thank you. Anytime. Very excited here because we're actually going to talk to a whole bunch of authors in the next couple of weeks because Thin Air, the Winnipeg Writers Festival, is coming up. But this is sort of an advance. Not, won't be part of the Winnipeg Festival. This was sent to us by one of our publicist friends, and Greg and I said, hey, this is relevant in Canada. And I'll just read you the first part of this press release that comes from Lincoln, Nebraska. With the breakneck pacing and taut suspense, fans have come to expect... From New York Times bestselling author Tosca Lee comes A Single Light, the sequel to her headline-inspired bestseller, The Line Between, which New York Times bestselling author Jonathan Mayberry calls The Line Between Science Fiction and Terrifying Real Science. And the press kit that they sent us included some screen grabs that say, yes, chronic wasting disease in deer is a public health issue for people. Chronic wasting disease in deer could eventually spread to humans, experts warn. Then there's a Google search that has things like zombie deer disease detected in three provinces, 24 states. So we got a cool book and it has to do with something that's very real. So we welcome to 680 CJOB as this book is set to launch today. Tosca Lee joins us live. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Are you in Nebraska right now? I am. I'm in Nebraska and I live on a farm. So, <laughs> Which part of Nebraska? Paint us a, a picture because uh, lots of us have uh, driven through Nebraska either on our way to Texas, California, yeah, Arizona. I'm in Nebraska. <laughs> I, I'm south of Fremont, which is between, it's kind of a triangle with Lincoln and Omaha. There we go. So, yeah, and I, my husband's a farmer, and we live out in the countryside, so, yep, it's a beautiful day. So, ah. corn huskers is the nickname, so are you corn farmers? Would it be oversimplification? Yes. <laughs> well, most of the farmers here are growing corn and soybeans, and as my husband does also, and our football team is called the Corn Huskers. Back in the day, it was called the Bug Eaters. I don't know why, <laughs> don't ask me why, but it's... We are the corn huskers. How much does your life on the farm and in Nebraska contribute to what you write in terms of the landscape around you or isolation that might be felt at times or others? Mm-hmm. You know, um, well, first off, it's a beautiful place to write. It's very quiet and serene and you don't, you know, have the distractions of the city or traffic. That said, um, I was a city girl before I married a farmer. Um, so these most recent two books, uh, The Line Between and A Single Light, um, have a lot to do with things like agriculture and um, climate change and things like that. And this is really the first time I've been able to set a book in the American Midwest where I live because in the past, my books have been set all over the world. So it's kind of a homecoming for me. Yeah, and I see the series based on real cases of anthrax and is it prion disease? Am I saying that correctly? Prion disease, yes. This is scary stuff. So when you think of like mad cow disease, which we've heard of, that's that's a prion disease. And then the wasting disease is also prion disease. There are human variants as well um, that have different names like Crutchfeldt-Jakob's disease and then Kuru that happens in cannibals only. So most of us should be okay when it comes to that one. But scary stuff. 
So this is the description here for a single light says it's set in the U.S. Uh, crippled by a pandemic and cyber terrorism. A single light catches up with cult escapee Winter Roth and ex-soldier Chase Miller who emerge from their bunker to find a country ravaged by disease. What drove them into the bunker in the first place? So in the very first book, what's happened is a disease has come out of the melting Alaskan permafrost, which, as you know, is, is real. That's taken from headlines. And um, it's it's become a pandemic and it's marched all the way down and across the U.S. And so by the time a single light takes place, uh, the country is in dire straits. And, and also a, a, an opportunistic cyber attack has, uh, has happened to the U.S. electrical grid. So there's no electricity um, at this time. And so the effects are devastating in the book. So that's the situation. It's dire. <laughs> your, your story is becoming what you're trying to tell and what you've told in the in the previous book is something that we're hearing more and more about, whether it's fiction or not, that, that obvious real concern that people have for the next big war, the next big thing, whether it's a fight over water or there's a cyber terrorism attack or something like that. We seem to see more and more of this in pop culture about, you know, having to go into hiding and come out and save yourself or others. What do you think is in our psyche or is it just because the science around us is making us think this way? Well, I think there's a couple things. I mean, this this story for me was inspired by real headlines. You mentioned the the reindeer that thawed in the permafrost in in Siberia that was filled full of anthrax and got an entire village sick. Um, Here in the U.S., we have actual documented cases of uh, terrorists attempting to take down the grid, and that's um, all that is in my author's notes in the back of the book. So even though it's fiction, it's based on real events. What our fascination is with stories of this genre, which would be considered apocalyptic or dystopian stories, my personal theory is that life is so complicated sometimes and the headlines can be so frightening that, you know, sometimes it's really interesting to dive into a story where all the noise of life falls away and there is only one goal and that is simply survival. And then everything becomes very simple. Why is it called zombie deer disease? (laughs) <laughs> zombie deer disease. Well, that's a reference to these zomb- zombie microorganisms that I don't know if it's scientists or if it's journalists who have coined that term, but it refers to microorganisms in the permafrost that as it melts, scientists have been able to bring them back and, and reinvigorate them and, and bring them back to you know life or resuscitate them, basically. So there's stuff in the permafrost that is still viable. Tosca Lee joins us now. And of course, we have permafrost not too far from where we live, and it's caused problems with uh, our transportation system. We have parts of Manitoba that are accessible only by train. And, and in fact, uh, our, our seaport on the, on the Hudson Bay was shut down for over a year and a half because the melting and the, and the thawing of the permafrost was causing and disrupting the, the railway that served that port. And so we've seen it firsthand here. And we hear all the time about the, the changing climate. And we're not here to get into a debate about climate change because uh, there are still people who believe it's a debate. But this whole idea of, of shifting of what is happening further south is going to be happening further north. And so, uh, you know, being a cold weather city, we might not be totally against that in isolation, but there's a larger picture here that not too far south of where you live in Nebraska is essentially desert. How afraid are people about that that shifting line of, of arable land versus non-arable land? You know, I, I don't know that we're thinking that much ab- about that where I live, um, but as far as you know, where that line is, I think it's probably a great concern. And, you know, it, it's interesting because there's a part of us that keeps thinking the weather should always stay the same and the temperatures should always be consistent from year to year. But, you know, this planet goes through, you know, its its own phases. And um, I, I think these are just some of those phases. Now, I see that the book, the the sequel book, A Single Light, launches today based the follow-up to The Line Between. The Line Between is also being adapted for television. How exciting is that? That's really exciting. And it's it's something that I kind of am on the sidelines of. I'm here to answer questions and consult. But I have to admit, it's really fun to watch the whole process 
take place. What network are you going to be on? Do you know? That we don't know. We're getting all ready to start pitching to networks. And so um, we're, I'm just reading through kind of the final pitch documents as they prepare to take it out. I'm super excited. Um, and I love our production partners, Radar Pictures and Ed Burns' group. Um, our showrunner, Glenn Whitman, who worked on Fringe and The Strain. He's fabulous. Um, super excited. In all your research and learning what you have in the development of your books and now with this TV show, I have to ask, you have a lot of wide open spaces where you are. Do you have a bunker of your own on the farm there? (laughs) I don't, but, you know, I find the whole prepper culture really interesting and it's it's kind of fun to, to see all the stuff that you can do. That said, I'm, you know, if anything did happen, I, I guess that I do count myself pretty fortunate that I, I live on a place that has its own well and I'm married to a man who knows how to hunt and fish and live off the land. So I feel like I might have a leg up. We had Robert J. Sawyer on the program yesterday to talk about uh, the changes in the economy with regards to AI, robotics, automation, that sort of thing. What's the next headline or the headlines that are fascinating you now about the future? And, and is that sort of where you're going to continue to focus your writing? Well, you know, right now the AI thing is very much in the forefront of, I think, a lot of people's minds. I actually just uh, read an early advanced copy of a friend's book um, called Synapse um, by Stephen James, and it was fascinating. It was about the rights of AI individuals, if you can call them that. Um, for me, though, when, when I'm looking ahead to my next couple projects, I'm actually going back in history. So I will be probably doing a couple historicals. All right. Tosca Lee joining us live from Nebraska this morning. She is the author of A Single Light, which launches today. It's the follow-up to the dystopian thriller, the best-selling dystopian thriller, The Line Between, which has been optioned for television. Tosca, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. And hello, Canada. Hello, Winnipeg. Oh, and I would add as well, I've always wanted to go to Nebraska to see a Cornhuskers game. I don't want to drive through Nebraska. I want to go to Nebraska. you got to come. It's a religious experience. (laughs) I actually have a couple of buddies. I'll tell you, that stadium is loud, so you need to do it. It's it's a legendary football stadium. It's one of the, uh, the, I think, the holiest grounds in all of college football. So thank you so much for joining us today from Nebraska. Thank you. Thank you so much. Couldn't help but think about Nebraska released their tourism slogan last year. Nebraska. Honestly, it's not for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, thanks for listening to the Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think. And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global. And on Instagram, at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.